and also to the Old Testament, to the book of Ecclesiastes, <coughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 8. The text for this morning is Ecclesiastes 8, verses 14 through 17. <coughs> Begin reading from verse 10 for context. This is God's word. <coughs> Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy... For man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Almighty God, we come before you and we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, that your word is truth, that your word is clear, that your word, Father, is authoritative in our lives. Father, we pray that, your, that we, your people, would humble ourselves before you. Father, we pray and thanks for the reminder that we would take joy in you, for indeed you are good, that you are greatly to be praised. And Father, that you know what is best for us as our Heavenly Father. And we trust you that you are one who gives good gifts to those uh, who ask of you. And Father, we thank you that you saw our need, our greatest need, and that you met that need through your Son, Jesus Christ, who indeed was offered up so that sinners, we as sinners, might be brought near. And that we who were once far away uh, can be forgiven of our sins through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray, Father, that if any of our here who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray, Father, that you might do uh, a mighty and gracious work of transforming hearts, that you would grant us the gift of faith, that we would embrace your promises. Father, we pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. How often is it that in uh, elections, in politics, that uh, you see yourself having to be in this bad situation of voting 
or the lesser of two evils. So candidate A, we have a well-meaning, like a someone of good character, but they're not too bright, not too intelligent. So there's a concern about some incompetence there. And then candidate B is very capable and highly intelligent, but of ill character. And I hope you can see that in that situation, you would say, that person is actually highly, highly dangerous. That person must not be trusted. And when we think about the candidates, why is it that oftentimes we, we find that this is the vote, right? Why isn't there some well-meaning, a good character person who's intelligent and capable? Well, perhaps it causes us to long for the Almighty God. You have to come to understand that with our Lord, there, there's no lesser of two evils. He is holy. He is just. And regarding his character, we cannot impugn it. He is good. There's goodness in our God. And regarding uh, his intelligence, he is infinite in wisdom. So all of these characteristics line up, and perhaps it's <clears throat> we see in our world, in our lives, that uh, those positive traits don't line up in people, but it's a reminder that they all line up with our God. Our God is sovereign over all the details of our lives, and he controls every detail. That he is holy, that he is good, that he's loving, and that he is also wise. And all of those characteristics together guarantee that our God is one who would never uh, intend something good but lack the power to control it in our lives, that he's one who uh, is holy and he's righteous, but he's also loving, so he wouldn't do something out of spite. And so we give thanks to our God, who is indeed uh, complete, that there's nothing lacking in our God. When we see this passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, there's a question here regarding uh, the wisdom and what wisdom does for man, <clears throat> that the effect of wisdom uh, earlier in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is that the effect of wisdom causes, uh, changes how we interpret the events of life around us. Then uh, wisdom leads us to proper submission to God's authority. <clears throat> and in submitting to God's authority, we then submit to man's authority because we believe that God controls all of uh, authority and anyone who is in authority has been placed there by God. And then there's also wisdom in being able to submit to the unknowns in life because though they are unknown to us, they are known by God. And then, uh, and then the passage before, verses 10 or 9 to 13, <clears throat> there's the question about injustice. <clears throat> that the author Kohelet sees the wicked are buried, that they receive praise in the city, and they go in and out of the holy place, that there's the concern that sentence against an evil deed is not carried out quickly, and the hearts of men are set on doing wrong. And then in today's passage, uh, there's the addressing of, besides just the injustices that go on, is that always going to be our focus? Or are we in our lives able to see the goodness of our God? Are we able to take joy in our God? 
And are we able to trust in him that his ways are past finding out, that his, his understanding, his wisdom is infinite, far beyond ours? Just because you and I cannot explain it does not mean it doesn't make sense. If, if we think that, then what we're saying is that God's wisdom can be no greater than ours. I meet all kinds of people every day where I don't understand what they're doing or why they're doing it. More often than not, when they explain it to me, then it starts to make sense. For some of them, they explain it to me, it still doesn't make sense. But that's not to say that it's wrong, <laughs> because, because they very well might just be a, a lot more intelligent than me. And so we see in this passage that your proper response to God's goodness is joy, and to his infinite wisdom is praise from a childlike faith. Your proper response to God's goodness is joy, and to his infinite wisdom is praise from a childlike faith. We'll look at this in two points. The first, your joy in God's goodness, and second, your childlike faith in God's infinite wisdom. So the first point, your joy in God's goodness, in verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So earlier in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, the author cites that he sees the wicked being buried, that they receive a proper burial, that there are people to mourn even the death of the wicked, and they receive praise in the city, that they have buildings and streets and uh, monuments named after them, that there is a resolve to fear God despite the instances where sinners prolong their lives because of their sins. But still, there is a reassurance that it will not be well for the wicked who do not fear God. So here, there is a resolve. There's, there's a decision. There's an act of faith that it is still good to fear God even though uh, a sinner can do evil a hundred times and prolong his life. Meaning that if, if you and I are to the point where we're saying uh, obeying God will result in a shorter life, then we simply have to resolve that that's how life will be. And great will our reward be in heaven. Here, there's a rule that we can learn from this passage. And that's God's instruction from opposites. So God's instruction from opposites. This is what the rule means. God uses the opposite situation to teach his people spiritual truths. So one example... Or I'll give you several examples, is that in life's sufferings, in the sufferings that you face in this life, God teaches you to find your true comfort in Him. So, if you didn't go through suffering, then you would not find comfort in God. Because part of life and part of faith requires that all sources of comfort, like comfort food, like a comfortable bed, that all of those get exhausted, used up. Then you find no comfort, and then you realize, wait a minute, the only comfort I have left 
is the comfort of my God. And that's when you find out God truly is your comfort. See, that's the instruction of opposites. In life's injustices, God teaches you about his goodness. <clears throat> Through lack, God teaches you about contentment in all circumstances. Through the means of unloving people. <clears throat> Through the means of unloving people in whatever the circumstance, God teaches you how to love others. Through delay and seemingly unanswered prayers, God teaches you patience. See, that's the rule of opposites. And, and so this rule comes up in this passage regarding God's goodness. In verse 14, he sees that righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked... So it seems like the sentence or the application, the reward, is opposite. The righteous person gets the, the punishment of the wicked. The wicked person gets the reward of the righteous. And that causes us to have some question. There, there's a sense of injustice. There's a sense of indignation there. And after all of that, the wrestling, the praying... The contemplation, what ends, what ends from that is you and I are able to see God's goodness from it. In verse 15, it's as if the author Kohelet wants everyone to go back and do a reality check. So he's addressing many matters that are deep, the injustices, the sufferings of life. But we see this on several occasions in this book of Ecclesiastes where he has this what some people call a carpe diem moment or this moment of clarity. He comes back to this moment of clarity and he here in verse 15 commends joy commends uh, he commends pleasure so is is the author then advocating some kind of hedonistic or a drunkard's lifestyle, someone who simply lives for pleasure? No, not at all. There's the warnings in other scriptures, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6, but she, meaning the widow, who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. So anyone who lives for pleasure, for wanton pleasure, is already dead even though they're still alive, meaning they're spiritually dead, though physically they're alive. So absolutely not. This is not what the author, Kohelet, is, is commending. And instead of commending joy in life, despite the difficulties, there are some other alternatives. And we think through some of those options, and perhaps you'll see that none of them are good. One of the options, other than taking pleasure in God and being joyful in the life that he has given you, is a life of joyless grumbling and thankless complaining. You've met some of these people. That uh, asking them that dangerous question of how are you doing is, uh, is going to result in some lengthy conversation. And perhaps we, we, sh- we should not fall into the, the victim of that of, of when we ask people how they're doing, uh, some people say that 
the answer is, oh, hey, I'm doing really well. That, that, that's, just, that's just a lie. But then if they go into this 30-minute spiel about all the, the wrongs and all the, all the injustices that they themselves have faced in their lives, then you start to wonder, wait a minute, what, what's, what's good? What's good in life? Perhaps another alternative is a heart of constant rejection of your God-given lot in life. That what God does, think of him like he's a dealer. He's a dealer in a, a, a poker game, right? So he deals out these cards. And at some point you might wonder, hey, uh, this dealer never gives me a good hand. And perhaps that's what some people think in life regarding God. That the lot that he gives me is always second or third best. It's never primary. Well, that's an issue of the heart, if anything. And another alternative is a focus on what is wrong, what is lacking, rather than what is good and praiseworthy. So when we approach any situation, looking at all the negatives, I think we've really forgotten the spirit of Philippians 4.8. Well, Elder Wayne read earlier, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and of anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That we as Christians ought to have the faith to see the good in every situation. That there really is substance regarding the matter of the pessimist and the optimist. Seeing the glass half full or half empty, uh, doesn't matter about that glass, but we're talking about life. If you and I are those who are constantly looking at the negatives, uh, the, the ills in a situation, then we have to ask ourselves, are we interpreting life according to faith or according to unbelief? Faith allows us to see the good that God is doing. And so, perhaps, regarding your witness, I'm not talking so much about sharing the gospel per se, but your witness of what does your life testify before a watching world about your belief in God? Is there faith manifested? Can you see the goodness? And is your life manifesting the joy of the Holy Spirit, trust in God's goodness and in His mercy. That if anything, this is the greatest testimony. That if we're going to tell others about Jesus Christ and His rule over our lives, that we must also be manifesting joy and satisfaction in the rule that we claim to have. So perhaps some people here... <clears throat> might ask the question, so are you saying, or is, is the author here, is God saying that uh, we ought to take joy in these situations? Is he saying that we should care nothing for justice, that, uh, that we shouldn't do justly and to seek justice for the widow and the orphan? No, he's emphatically not saying that at all. Justice ought not to be denied. Rather, uh, he's saying that after... After all of life is looked at, after we look through all of these things, is there joy or is there lasting uh, dissatisfaction in what God is doing in our lives? Here, perhaps what we can say 
and a uh, everyday common usage is don't forget to stop and smell the roses. Meaning as you go through life, if you're constantly irked by the injustices that are brought up, are you stopping to smell the roses in your life? Perhaps that's a little too common. Perhaps it's a little too common. Verse 15 spells it out so clearly. And I commend joy. For a man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. God does not commend joylessness. He commends joy. He commends us to be joyful. Joy is hope in God that surmounts your present circumstances. All kinds of people can be happy when everything goes their way, uh, when, when their lives are good, when the, when the health reports are positive, but when the circumstances go bad, their happiness is gone. But in Christ, your joy can remain. And that's, that's the secret that the Apostle Paul spoke of regarding joy. It had nothing to do with the circumstances. It had everything to do with their faith, his faith in Jesus Christ. His trust that, that his God was greater than the circumstances. That this God of ours gave us the circumstances. Consider how the Apostle Paul reasoned in that situation. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. Were you called as a slave? Do not let it concern you. But if you are also able to become free, take advantage of that. For the one who is called in the Lord as a slave is the Lord's free person. Likewise, the one who is called as free is Christ's slave. So he's asking the question, when you were called to faith in Jesus Christ, were you a slave? And he's saying, don't let it concern you. If you're able to obtain freedom, obtain it. But if not, uh, continue on with life. Enjoy. Now, perhaps some of you might think, well, this is, this, is in, this is a callous view that you have towards slavery. Well, it's not my view. It's, it's the Apostle Paul's view. And perhaps we can come up with all kinds of modern interpretations. Well, that was a different type of slavery back then. Well, the bottom line is, a slave back then could have lost his life with no repercussions. If you look at uh, the life of Joseph, he was sold by his brothers in the life of slavery. And God profited his life even when he was a slave. That the things that he touched succeeded. And God's promise is that the servant or the slave who honors his master, does what is right and good, that he also will receive an inheritance just as the master's sons. So here, despite being a slave and not free, even in that situation, to know Christ is to rejoice. To know Christ is to rejoice. So he says, For man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. And so the commendation here 
is that despite the difficulties you face in life, that you and I ought to be enjoying God. There ought to be an enjoyment of God in our lives. That we ought to remember to give thanks to God and to rejoice in Him each day. That this is a good thing, that we see the good that the Lord is doing. And then the mention in the end of verse 15, through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So the days that we have under the sun are limited, but they are given to us by God. And what exists, what happens during each of those days are given to us also by God. God fills those days. You and I make real choices every day regarding what we do, what we think, what we read, what we say. But you realize that at the same time, it's true that God is the one who fills those days. And we must take joy in our God who fills those days. We're reminded that he's in control of all things. He's loving and that he is good. That his goodness is beyond our understanding. But we trust in it. We trust in Him. And so this is a reminder that you and I ought to be joyful in God's goodness because He would never do us harm. So that's the first point, your joy in God's goodness. We have the second point, your childlike faith in God's infinite wisdom. In verses 16 and 17, when I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, <clears throat> that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. <clears throat> so we have an earthly pursuit of wisdom. This is what's happening in the book of Ecclesiastes. An attempt to search out wisdom, to search out meaning, to search out purpose, to search out satisfaction, to search out pleasure outside of God. We're going to try to pursue these things independent of God. I mean, if you think about philosophy, uh, that's, that's what philosophy is. Hedonism. Trying to do it outside of God and outside of his rules. Well... What we have in verse 16 is the description of, of the result of that. Neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Meaning that if you're attempting to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction and joy and pleasure outside of God, your search will never end. It will be restlessness. And it will, it will result in, in grief. It will result in... Um, and all that is lacking. You'll be left wanting. <clears throat> and then in verse 17, he says, Then I saw all the work of God. There's a contrast between man's wisdom and work and God's. God's ways, we're told, are so much higher than our ways. There's man's wisdom and there's God's wisdom. <clears throat> And as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far is God's ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. Man is finite and God is infinite. So part of the difficulty of man understanding God 
is you have the matter of the sin nature. <clears throat> so an unregenerate person still bound by the sin nature, a regenerate person set free, but there's still the, the remnant of sin in the regenerate man's life. So part of the difficulty is the, the darkening of sin, the darkening effect of sin. And then what you have is after a person, after a Christian dies and goes to heaven, that sin nature is completely removed. So the ability to sin is removed. But is he able then to understand God perfectly? The answer is still no. Because even though the sinner who died and went to heaven is sinless, doesn't have uh, the, the hindrances of sin in his life, but the sinner who is glorified and in heaven is still finite. He is still finite and God is still infinite. And it is impossible for the finite to understand he who is infinite. I hope you can see that. That for us to understand God fully is not going to be possible. So... We have a question regarding God's own character. God's own character is that he's infinite in wisdom. So he, he's the one who grants wisdom. And this is where we ought to pray, as we're told in James 1, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. That we ought to ask God for wisdom. Wisdom to understand uh, giving the right answer. Wisdom to understand how... God's word is applicable to our everyday lives. Wisdom to understand giving a proper word in season for the encouragement of those around us. That all of this wisdom comes from God. And that God is infinite in wisdom. Because God is infinite in wisdom and we are not, the result is that we have God who is incomprehensible. We read it earlier in Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. There's a limit to our understanding. Now, perhaps some of you are thinking, wait a minute. Are you saying that God is not knowable? No, I didn't say that. I'm trying to address this, the, the Newman effect. Are you saying this? No, I'm not saying this. So, is God not knowable? No, He is knowable. He's revealed Himself in His Word. He's told us who He is. So, He is knowable. What I'm saying is the limit to our knowledge of Him. There is a limit to our knowledge of Him. He is infinite. We are finite. That which is finite can never span that which is infinite. And the result is God's incomprehensibility. And so here... We, we have the matter of the, the defense of God's honor. At times we won't understand what God is doing. And perhaps some years later we might see it. We might see God's thoughts and, and God's truth manifested and why God did what he did years ago. Perhaps we do, perhaps we don't. Perhaps in heaven we might understand more. Perhaps we know we, we won't ever understand it. But we should never say, since I don't understand it, there must not be truth or wisdom in it. Because God's ways, we're told, are past finding out. 
that there's great wisdom in God. And part of our response to our lack of understanding in God's ways is that there ought to be a childlike trust. You see, children simply don't know some of the more, the finer details and the difficulties of life. A good example, a good example is the disciples. When Jesus was preaching and teaching, and they were off in a remote place, and they're wondering about food. And then they talked about 200 denarii would not be enough so that everyone here, the thousands of people here, would have even one bite to eat. And what they should have done is said, Jesus, you are the one who has great power because you are God. You can provide us food. And they didn't. But Jesus is the one who made something of nothing. He provided bread and he provided fish. It's the adult who looks at how, many, how much wage would it cost to produce and we'd have to go far away to some, some business to buy it. Well, children just simply trust, well, we don't have food. We ask of God, he provides. We don't know about the kneading and the mixing and the rising and the yeast effective seed. Children don't think about those things. Simply ask and God provides. And so also at times, perhaps we shouldn't look at all the difficulties Perhaps we shouldn't be thinking through about all the challenges. We should simply be asking of God and trusting Him in childlike faith. That our God, who is infinite in wisdom, has the answer even before we pray and ask Him. And that many of those details, we can leave to Him. He will deal with it. We go to Him in childlike faith, and that He provides us that which is good. At times... We're anxious because we wonder about those details. We worry about those specifics. What will life be like when? What will the the lives of my loved ones and my descendants be? Do you like watching science fiction? You realize that anytime you have a show that involves time travel, they start to get really weird. <clears throat> so you look at some movie like Back to the Future. You know, oftentimes, what's, what's going on in these books or these movies that talk about time travel? It has something to do with fixing a problem in the past or preventing a problem in the future. Isn't that, isn't that the heart of it? And, and if you ask the question, hey, would you be a trillionaire if you invented a time-traveling machine? And the answer is yes, because people think they can go back to fix a problem or go in the future to to know what's going to happen. But you ask yourself, is this what God God tells us to do, to desire time travel? And the answer is no. Deuteronomy 29, 29, so clear for us. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So, are we going to worry? Are we going to be anxious about the future? Well, the end result would be King Saul and the witch of Endor. Look at what he did. As a king, he had said 
it is punishable by death to be a witch or sorcerer. And then he searches out this witch, not to test her and condemn her, but he wants to know the future. If you think about the saying regarding your finances, there's no crystal ball in your investments. Essentially, that's what people want. They want to know the future. But the bottom line is, you and I don't need to know the future. We should never be searching out witches and sorcerers to know the future. God specifically forbids any action like that. But rather, we should be those who trust in him simply, as a child does. When we think about even this passage, think about God's goodness. His goodness is manifested in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. That he who did not spare his son, how much also will he give, graciously give us all things? Anything that you need, anything that's good for you, that he will not withhold. Because he did not withhold his only begotten son. So if you're in need, which you are, if you're in need of a savior... He's provided that in Jesus Christ. You and I have sins, and we cannot save ourselves. We cannot work for our forgiveness. We cannot earn it. God provides it in His Son. And He commands us that we might receive it by faith. Think also of of His infinite wisdom. That how can God be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ? The good news of the Gospel. That the way is through His Son. Well, how can someone who was born of a woman be righteous? Well, he's reckoned righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's through a Savior, through Jesus our Lord, that he is the one who comes to save his people from their sins. And that you and I would trust in our God, that we would trust in his goodness, and that we would be joyful in that goodness. And that also we would have a childlike faith, that our God is infinite in wisdom, that the goodness of God, that the gospel of Jesus Christ testifies to his infinite wisdom. For Jesus is the wisdom of God, and that to that we ought to say praise unto God, that he didn't withhold his son, that his goodness is manifested. He gives us the very best, and our lives might be lived in such a way that we're trusting him at every step, joyful in our lives, not doubting Him, but believing Him, living for His glory, walking by faith, walking in obedience to Him, and that this is part of joy in the Christian life, trusting that our God's ways are perfect, and that He is one who sustains us, that His wisdom is far beyond ours, but you and I can rest secure in that, because we know that God's plan is perfect that he makes all things beautiful in their proper time.